Must have been a long weekend. All right, we have, let me, we do have a quiz due today. Uh, quiz on chapters 13 and 14 is available this weekend and will remain available through 6 o'clock tomorrow. So you can take that. If you haven't taken it already, you can take it anytime by 6 a.m. tomorrow. Third article review is due on Friday. So if you haven't started that yet, you probably want to start looking at it. You are welcome to use another one. I had posted those original 10 articles that were Sky and Telescope that you could use. So you're welcome to use another one of those if you would like to. Um, or you can, of course, select your own if you've been able to the, the whole semester. Um, exam 4, scheduled for a week from today. Chapters 13, 14, and 15. We're definitely on track to get there, so we should be, should be good this time. We're not running behind at all. I'm actually running slightly ahead in this class, so we're actually a hair ahead of where we should, where we should be. Because we have chapter 15 that we're working on. We just finished 14 on the Milky Way. Chapter 15 is on the galaxies that we're working on right now. And then we have chapters 16, 17, and 18. And final exam comes up four weeks from Wednesday. So we're right about on schedule. We may, may even be a little bit ahead. So we're doing real good. So the exam should be good for <coughs> next, mon next Monday, the 19th. Again, covering just those three chapters. Final exam for this class, I mentioned last time, is Wednesday the 12th of December. And here, same time, except that you'll be on a Wednesday and you'll be here Wednesday from 9 to 11 instead of Friday from 9 to 11. But the same time, same room, and everything else is identical. Um, final exam involves two parts. So it's, it's twice weighted compared to a regular, twice weighted, it's actually 200 points compared to the regular 50-point exam, so it is a, is a little bit more. Um, the first half of it is questions from your first four exams. So, when you, so it is comprehensive. It covers the whole class. But you don't need to go back and reread the whole book. So you don't need to go back and read chapter 0, chapter 1, chapter 2. You don't need to look at that. What I recommend studying is your first four exams, because that's where I'm going to get the material for the, last, for the first half of the exam. It's going to come straight from those, those, those questions, questions on the exam. Might be exact questions word for word. I might change a few things about some of them if I feel something was confusing or I just want to make a slightly different question. I might change true to false. Might make a fill in the blank question, a multi, uh, multiple choice or vice versa. But the material is there. So really if you know the material on those four exams, I'm not going to add anything new from the previous. The second one will be the material from chapters 16, 17, and 18, the last three chapters. So it'll be like an exam, a typical exam. That'll be the other half of the final. So separate into two parts. One will be the older material coming from the other ex older exams. The other will be new material that we covered after exam four, chapters 16 through 18. So I'll mention, I'll remind you that again the week before the final exam. In fact, I'll probably pull that off. I won't be putting that up there daily right now until we get a little bit closer since we still have a few more assignments that come up due there in the, in the meantime. Um, homework seven will be due on the 23rd. And I think I mentioned that last time. I did put an asterisk there because the 23rd is the day after Thanksgiving. So if you want to turn in a paper copy, I won't be here that day. You guys won't be here that day. So if you want to turn in a paper copy, you'll want to turn it in on Wednesday. Um, but if you want to submit it through the Dropbox on D2L, you can do that up through Saturday morning as normal for a typical homework assignment. So you can do that as well. So your choice on it, but that's, that's the option that you have, you have on those. But if you want to turn in a paper copy, make sure you have it done by next Wednesday so that I can have that. 
And then the iTunes quiz number three will be available starting oh, a week from today. It'll be available that whole Thanksgiving week for you. That'll cover the pictures from the October 13th, which is the end of the last quiz, through the 16th of November, which should be Friday. So it'll cover that section. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and make a fourth one. We'll have enough days left at the end. I'm going to add a fourth one in. Now that'll give us a total of 12 quizzes. And I only count your 10 highest, your 10 highest scores. So two quizzes will end up being dropped. So if, if you're doing fine on the quiz and you don't want to bother with that last one, don't worry about it. But if you missed a quiz earlier on or two quizzes earlier on and you want to get one of those zeros dropped, you can do, you can do that too. So there will be one more iTunes quiz that will come up that will do probably the 17th of November in through the last day of class, the 7th of December. And then I'll have that available final exam week. And I'll give you a reminder that end of that week and I'll give you a reminder the uh, on the day of the final. So you'll have the option of taking it. Of course, you'll see your final, your final grade excluding that will be up and available probably that Wednesday afternoon. I usually have everything graded pretty quickly. I've, in the past, I've usually had you know, final grades up if your exam lens at 11 and I must have something else that I have that afternoon that I don't know about right now. I'll probably have your final grades up sometime that late afternoon or evening. So you'll have everything done and you'll know whether it makes a difference. You know, if you have a grade right then of, you know, 80.1%, it doesn't matter, and with, even with a zero on the quiz, it won't matter, so you have no reason to go and take it if you don't want to. If you're, if you're at 79.9, you might want to go ahead and take it just to make sure you're pushed over and not, make, not even have me go look through and look at what you did. If you got over 80, then I don't have to worry about it. So I'll remind you again. I'll remind you a little bit more of that as we get a little bit closer. But there will be one more iTunes quiz. This one will be available. The other one will be available probably the last, starting the very final, during final exam week that you'll be able to take on D2L. So any questions on that? Nope, nope. All right, picture of the day for today. Beautiful image there of the waterfall in Australia. You can see. And you've got nice contrast there. You've got the stars and the Milky Way galaxy up in the sky. Nice meteor happened to shoot through when, while the image was being taken. Can't plan that one. You know, catch a meteor, you catch it quite by accident. You just happen to have your camera open at the right time. If you'd taken the picture, you know, a minute earlier or a couple of minutes later, you would have you would have missed that. Because those, those only occur in an, in an instant. You can't even plan it by the time you see it and press your shutter to take it, it's too late, it's gone. So you actually have to happen here to have your lens open. So that was just a coincidence on it. And then you see down below, you see the mountainside kind of illuminated. You can get a little bit of an idea of that, that you can actually see the mountainside here. Looks relatively bright and sort of gives you a contrast there. How are we seeing the mountainside nicely illuminated and still seeing the, the stars? We're seeing the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It has to be dark. Whoops. I just got dark. Look at that. Okay. Try again. So, now of course nowadays, yeah, you can make that kind of image real easy, right? You take two images and Photoshop them together, smooth everything out and it looks nice. That's not what was done here. This is an actual image. So this was actually taken, you know, all at once. Taking the stars, get the stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and get the everything all at once. And what it means is that the sun wasn't up while this was taken. So there's no sunlight involved. So even that nice little rainbow down there was not involved with sunlight. How do you get a rainbow without sunlight, right? Well, the other, next other brightest thing you got in the sky is the moon. Don't see the moon out there, but the moon is behind you, just rising. And the moonlight coming through actually illuminates the side of the mountain, the waterfall there, and causes the rainbow. So typically a rainbow is caused by the sun. Not in this case. In this case it's caused by the moon. It's caused by light from the full moon. 
Now, everything looks very bright there. You know, you've, everybody's been out during a full moon and it's not that bright. But of course, the camera doesn't, you know, your eye just takes a clip of light every, you know, for a tiny fraction of a second. The f- camera, you can leave it open for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and you can collect all of that light. And then over time, if you take even in the dark, in a relatively darkened area, if you leave a camera open for a long enough period of time, if you're doing a scenery shot, right, things aren't moving, except for the waterfall, but that all gets blurred out anyway. You know, the rocks aren't going anywhere in that kind of time frame. Then you actually illuminate it, and you can actually get a nice image of the moonlight illuminating down here, causing the rainbow or moonbow down here and still get the sky up in the background. Still see the Milky Way galaxy up there and still see some of the stars in the background all in one image without having to go through and you know, do any extra photoshopping to put everything together to make it look like a pretty, pretty image like that. So that actually is a nice, it's a rainbow or as they call it, I think they even titled it down here a moonbow. A meteor and a moon and a moonbow over the falls. So, questions? Questions? to 14. We're getting there. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back to galaxies then. We were looking at the galaxies and chapter 15. And I'd gone through and given you a bunch of types of galaxies. We talked about spiral galaxies. So we had we had the spirals, we had the barred spirals. We had the ellipticals. We had the lenticulars and we had the irregulars. So those were all the those are the five different classifications of galaxies, uh, primary classifications. Spirals again were S's and you had S SA, SB or SC depending on how large the bulge was at the center. So bigger bulges were SA, smaller bulges were SC. Barred spirals were just the same except spiral barred. So SB, A, SBB, SBC. So same type of classification. Ellipticals were a little bit different but we still made it nice and easy in terms of using an E for the code. So elliptical galaxy is an E. E0 was a big sphere, big ball of stars as an elliptical galaxy. And you could have anything down to an E7 which would be a flattened like a football shaped. Not flattened to a disc, not flattened to a frisbee or a pancake shape, but more of a football shape would be an E7, would be classified as an E7. That's as flat as the elliptical galaxies get. The lenticulars, no they're not L's. We went through that last time. They're actually S's. And they're actually an S0 or an SB0 if they have a bar through the center. And irregulars are kind of everything else that doesn't have any significant form, just an IRR for an irregular type of galaxy. And that's what we were looking at last. Show a couple examples of irregular galaxies here. This one on the right doesn't have any discernible structure to it. It's got a lot of stars there. Um, very large, but no discernible area, no, no structure, no very definite elliptical structure, no spiral structure, nothing that you can really see. It's just an irregular grouping of stars. The one on the left hand side, a little bit different, interesting, is this ring shaped almost. And that's probably likely due to interactions. 
between galaxies so that you can actually have an irregular galaxy that could be caused by interactions with another, another galaxy, gravitational forces disrupting the galaxy and changing its shape from a typical you know, spiral galaxy into something much more distorted. Now, if we try to put all this together in some kind of format, we come up with, as was done oh, not, qu- not quite a hundred years ago, but well, sorry, one, one more slide first. Just looking at the basic properties. Let me go back to the basic properties and I'll go over. This is just a table from your textbook. And sort of putting everything together. What do we see in terms of the shape for a spiral or barred spiral? They're grouped together. Spirals and barred spirals are really the same except for that bar. That's the only difference between the two. Um, elliptical galaxies, what is the shape? They're all very spherical. No significant structure other than that there's denser material at the center and then it gets less and less as you go further, further out. So it has kind of a bulge there but nothing, no, no distinct structure. Um, stellar content, what kind of stars do they have? The, the spiral galaxies have a disk with young and old stars and halos with only the old stars. The elliptical galaxies are essentially a big halo. That's all they are. There's no disk, no young stars at all. Irregulars, again, are a mixture. Gas and dust, lots of gas and dust in the spirals, none in ellipticals. You see how it all gets related together. You have only old stars, but you have no, and you have no gas and dust, and you have no star formation because they all go together. In order to have star formation, you have to have gas and dust. If you don't have any of that, you're not going to have any new stars. You're only going to have very old stars. Then finally, the orbits. How do the stars move? Remember we talked about the spiral galaxies and in our own Milky Way, everything moved around. So everything orbited around the center of our galaxy in a nice ordered fashion. So when you look down at the spirals and at the stars in a spiral galaxy, they were orbiting you know, around in one direction or the other, around the spiral. As everything moved, they'd move around and they'd move through the spiral arms and they'd come around here and they'd come around through this one. So they'd actually move through the spiral, through the spirals, through the structure. But they'd all, everything was going in the same direction. All the stars were. You didn't have some stars going in an opposite direction. You didn't have those two stars, but this star was going you know, backwards. It was a very ordered pattern in the disk. The elliptical galaxies are completely the opposite. There is no pattern to how they move. Some are going this way, some are going that way. The three dimensionals you just got, sort of like the molecules in this room. Everything's moving around in random directions. That's what's happening in an elliptical galaxy. Interesting in the irregulars, they have a lot of properties of the spiral galaxies in terms of having a lot of gas and dust and star formation, but they have very irregular orbits. They don't have any of the ordering that exists in a spiral galaxy. So. Just the basic properties, again, that's the table right from your textbook in chapter, chapter 15. Now, now if we put them all together, we get what we call the tuning fork diagram. It's a good way to kind of remember the classifications, put everything together. It doesn't have any other meaning. It was thought to perhaps at some point in the past that maybe this is how galaxies changed over time. That maybe you formed a galaxies formed as these nice big elliptical galaxies and then they slowly flattened into a disk, formed a disk which then formed spiral arms and then those spiral arms maybe perhaps slowly opened up as you went through time and the spiral and this dispersed off. So it was originally perhaps thought maybe this is how spiral, how galaxies change over time. We no longer think this is the case. So it's a nice way to remember them. You split out the spirals into two branches 
You have the spiral, traditional spirals and the barred spirals. Irregulars just kind of put off to the edge here. And then you have the ellipticals classified from the most spherical down to the flattest of the elliptical galaxies. Lenticulars were kind of the dividing in between because they have properties of both. They're a lot like a elliptical galaxy in terms of what types of stars they have. So they have older stars, they don't have young stars, they don't have gas and dust. But shape-wise, other than spiral arms, they're flattened to a disk, very flat, just like the spiral galaxies. So they're kind of a cross in between the two. So it was thought maybe at one point that that was kind of a dividing line. Maybe that was sort of how this one type of galaxy slowly changed into another. Again, we no longer think that is the case. We think that galaxies now change through primarily through collisions. That they collide together and will slowly change the shapes. We'll look at that a little bit more in the coming chapters, but how they change in terms of you know, multiple galaxies colliding together, and if you collide in the right direction, perhaps you can perhaps that is how you can create spiral arms. But now it's just used as a traditional you know, sort of way to put everything together, show all the galaxies in one kind of one kind of plot. All right, distances. Now, told you distances are going to come back. We've got a couple more ways to measure distances here. Um, Cepheid variables were our last one we'd used. They let us get distances out to about 25 million parsecs. About 75, 80 million light years. So quite a ways out into space. But not much. Okay? The universe is about 14 billion years old. That's about how far we can see, meaning we can see 14 billion light years away. So we can see things that are 14 billion light years away. That's as far back as we can possibly see anything. That means that 80 million light years isn't all that much compared to 14 billion. It's only a tiny little piece of that. We're only looking at our own little backyard still. Even here. It's been the backyard for a long time. Really those first ones we were looking inside the house. Right? You're standing there and you're measuring distances in the house. Now you're getting out to the backyard maybe. But you're still only a very tiny fraction of what we see out there in the universe. Most of those galaxies are too far away for us to use this method. The Cepheids just are not visible. So to go in order to get others we need more distances. So there's two that we use. One is called the Tully-Fisher relationship which works for spiral galaxies only and it correlates how a galaxy rotates. That there is a relationship between how fast a galaxy rotates and its luminosity. So astronomers found this. Here's a way to determine brightnesses of galaxies. Again, we want to get that luminosity. If I determine the luminosity, the true brightness, the absolute magnitude, I can get the distance. That's the only key that I need. That's the hard part to get is to determine what the true luminosity is. There's no direct way to measure that. I can measure its apparent luminosity. How bright does it look to us? That's easy. But measuring how bright it truly is out there in the universe is a very hard thing to get. This we can measure. A rotational speed? Well, that's just the Doppler effect. I can measure that very easily. As long as I can see the galaxy out there, I can measure the rotational speed pretty easily and get, get a value for that. How fast is it rotating? And if there's a relationship between that and luminosity, like there is with the Cepheids and how they pulsate in the luminosity, I can use that, okay, measure the Doppler shifts of it, determine its rotation, I've got its luminosity, I've got its distance. The other one that we're going to add in is type 1 supernovae. I mentioned this before. 
Type 1 supernovae all have the same luminosity. They all have the same intrinsic brightness. Why? Why are they all the same brightness? And why only type 1 supernovae? Type 2 supernovae was an exploding star, right? It was a star that reached the end of its life, built up iron in its core, and exploded. A type 1 supernovae was a white dwarf that, ex- that became unstable and exploded. The only way that happens is if the white, no- white dwarf has a very specific mass, 1.4 times the mass of the sun. That's exactly how much it takes for that star to blow up. If you go over that limit, that star becomes unstable and it tears itself apart. That means every single type 1 supernova that ever occurs is a star that is 1.4 times the mass of the sun. None of them are 1.8, none of them are 1.2. They're all exactly the same amount. So there shouldn't be very much variation. That means any one occurring, whether it occurs here or whether it occurred in a galaxy billions of light years away, would still have exactly the same intrinsic brightness. So we'd be able to measure that directly. So we can measure how bright it gets. I know it's a type 1 supernova, like an R.R. Lyrae star we mentioned a couple, couple times ago. They all get exactly as bright. So we can determine the distance. I know how bright it's going to be once I get that apparent, that once I detect it in a galaxy, then I can measure the distances. Problem is, difficulty with it, this is easy, works for spiral galaxies, I can actually measure them, and it works for anyone. Here, I've got to wait for the supernova to occur. So if I want to measure the distance to that galaxy using this method, you know, I can sit there and wait and wait and twiddle my thumbs patiently. Okay, when is it going to occur? And that supernova might occur next week or next year or a thousand years from now or a million years from now. There's no way to predict when that supernova will occur. So it works very good for the ones that we can find and the supernovae occur relatively often, but you can't, if you're trying to measure the distance to a specific galaxy, it doesn't help you unless the supernova has occurred there. So what this does for our distance ladder is increases our distance ladder now. Oops, well, let me do the, sorry, I'm supposed to go over the Doppler. This is just showing what's happening with the Tully-Fisher relationship. Essentially, you're measuring the rotation. So if I look at this, what we see is part of the line is blue shifted. That part of that galaxy is coming towards us. The center is just staying there, right? It's not rotating at all, so it's unshifted. It's right at the center. This side of the galaxy is receding from us, right? So as the galaxy rotates, this part is coming away from us, means that it's red shifted. What you really see is not three distinct lines, but the line gets blurred out. So you end up seeing one big thick line. The wider that line is, the faster this galaxy is rotating. So by the width of that line, so if we're looking at the hydrogen line, the wider that line gets, the faster it's rotating. So that's really what astronomers are looking at. They're looking at how wide, how thick that line gets. A real thin line would mean that this one isn't blue shifted very much, it's almost this. This one isn't red shifted very much, they're almost exactly the same and there isn't much of a change. So that's how we go about, how we can go about measuring the Tully-Fisher. Now again, that, rota- that relationship works for spiral galaxies, does not work for ellipticals or irregular. So it only is good for determining distances to spiral galaxies. Now we've got the distance ladder out here. We're getting a little bit better. We've still got one more, one more step to put on. But now we can get out Tully-Fisher relationship for spiral galaxies, gets us out to about 200 million parsecs, or about six, six, seven hundred million light years. 
let's say 600 million light years, roughly. <coughs> Compared to 14 billion, eh, still not getting there quite. The supernovae, those things are incredibly bright. We can see them over very large distances. We're up to gigaparsecs now, so billions of parsecs. So 1 billion parsecs would be about a little over 3 billion light years. Compared to 4, 13, 14 billion years. We're getting out there. We're starting to get across. We're starting to get out well, well out of the backyard and well into the neighborhood and you know, down the street and into the next city now. But we're still only measuring less than a quarter of the distance. We're not getting way out there. Distance, I told you, distances were so hard to get. And as you recall, each of these, again, this is a ladder, so everything depends on the others. So in order to determine how bright a type 1 supernova is, you know, there's never been a type 1 supernova that's close enough to measure its parallax directly. There's never been a type 1 supernova that's occurred right in our own neighborhood. So we can't do that. We have to use this method to build on this method to build on this one and build it up in a chain. So any errors in determinations down here and down here just get magnified as we go further and further out. So it's very difficult to determine those distances. We've got one more to put up there which really gets us out to the edge of the universe. There is actually one way that we can measure the galaxies way out here, getting out towards 14 billion light years. And that's what will be coming up here in just a little bit. Now, but before we get there, let's look. We have to understand how galaxies are distributed in space. We looked at star, how stars were distributed within a galaxy, and a lot of them tended to cluster. We had the open clusters and the globular clusters, for example. When we look at our own local group, which is our nearby area of galaxies, going out to you know uh, Andromeda here and the Milky Way, that's about two million light years apart. So our Milky Way here has all of these little tiny satellite galaxies orbiting it. So just like the planets orbit around the sun in the solar system, other galaxies, little, little galaxies, orbit around larger galaxies. Andromeda has another relatively large spiral, not quite as big as it, here, and a number, again, a number of little galaxies that are orbiting around these two. So we get a number of galaxies that are distributed into, into groupings. And we call those clusters, this is actually what we call our local group, is our small, relatively small group of galaxies, 40-some galaxies that make up you know, our little neighborhood of galaxies in the universe. Again, this is a very tiny, we talked 2 million light years, that's so far away, but 2 million light years, 14 billion light years, you know, we are still you know, right on our block. We're right here, we're still right here looking at the very nearby, nearest galaxies to us. And that's why we still can see some of these. We can actually see some of these little tiny galaxies. These things wouldn't be visible. They'd be too faint to see much further away. We only see the largest of the large galaxies. So what we have in the local group, about 45 galaxies, three nice spiral galaxies, no big elliptical galaxies. There are very large elliptical galaxies in many other clusters. Our little group does not have any. So the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, and M33 are actually those three, and then those satellites, those little ones, little galaxies around them, and that forms the local group. Now those galaxies, those galaxy groups, galaxies are held together by their own gravity, <coughs> so are the clusters. So there's enough matter in those clusters to hold those galaxies together. They're not escaping out into, a, into space. So if you remember, we had two different types of cluster star clusters. We had globular clusters, which were bound together and stayed there forever. 
and we had open clusters which were formed, but they weren't, there wasn't enough matter there and they were slowly dispersing out into space. Galaxy clusters are, other than shape, more like the globular clusters. They're bound together. So if you could come back in a million years or a billion years, the clusters should still be overall the same. The clusters aren't going to be dispersing out into space. And that's what, we're say, that's what we're saying here. This is just our local group. This is a very small number of galaxies, only you know, less than 50 galaxies that are very close to us. No big large galaxies, no very large elliptical galaxies, no lenticular galaxies, spiral barred spiral, and irregulars. There are some ellipticals in terms of very small elliptical galaxies, some of those little ones that we see around us. But this is what we call these groups of galaxies, what we call galaxy clusters. And as we look further out into the universe, we see bigger and bigger galaxy clusters. Our, this is a very tiny cluster by most standards. There are clusters that have you know, thousands or millions of galaxies in them. So this is an incredibly tiny cluster, just looking at 45 of the nearest galaxies that happen to be grouped together with us. If we go a little further out, we have the Virgo cluster. Relatively large cluster, a little bit larger cluster, 3,500 galaxies. 45 galaxies, 3,500 galaxies. A big difference in the number of galaxies there and has at its center a very large elliptical galaxy, M87. If you remember, we, think we looked at this, may have looked at this a long time, but the M objects are just Messier's catalog of relatively bright objects that could have looked like comets in an old telescope hundreds of years ago. So he classified some of the biggest fuzzy objects in the sky so that astronomers looking for comets knew exactly that this was not something to be examining. It had nothing to do with a comet. So that's where the M's, because we saw M33 in the last one and M87 here and M86 as well. But you see that this is a much larger group, almost not quite ten times larger than our own local group, but has a very, it's dominated by this very large elliptical galaxy at the center. So an elliptical galaxy very irregular, very um, just big ball of stars. No gas, no dust, formed all the stars you know, billions of years ago and not much going on it, in it right now. But as we look out we see clusters and we see clusters. We'll see that clusters can also group into clusters. So not only do you get clusters, but you get clusters of clusters as everything goes out further in the universe. Now, our last distance measurement, Hubble's Law. What we find with very few exceptions, and in fact both of those, the only exceptions are things that are very close to us, such as the Andromeda Galaxy, which is actually moving closer to us. Every galaxy that we look at is moving away from us. We forgot to shower this morning or something and they're all just getting out of there. Yeah. So they're all moving away from us. And there seems to be a relationship between how fast they're moving away and how far they are away from us. So the ones that are close to us are moving away very slowly, not as fast. The ones that are further away are moving away even faster. Now, it's not that they're moving away from us. It's all, this actually goes back and we'll come up to this when we talk about cosmology and the universe in general. It's really just the universe and space between the galaxies is expanding. So we're not in any special place that everything's moving away from us. If we went to another galaxy billions of light years away, and made the same measurements, we'd get the same thing. All the galaxies are moving away from them. So any galaxy that we go to, we get the same kind of thing. You can get a similar idea, you know, blow up a balloon. Take a balloon, make a, little, make a bunch of dots on it, blow it up a little bit. 
and keep blowing it up, all the galaxies are getting further away from all the little objects on it are getting further away from each other. So they're not, you know, they're not, some aren't getting, nothing's at the center. There's no center to that surface of the balloon. Everything, nothing is getting further away from one specific point. No matter which galaxy you pick out, some object, everything else is going to be moving further away from it. And if you did the measurements, if you actually made measurements on it, you'd find out that the further ones, as you get further and further away, they're getting, moving faster and faster. So it's more like that. It really has to do with the expand, with the universe expanding and the space between the galaxies getting larger and larger. And that's what you're seeing here. What it's sort of showing is, here's the galaxies. And again, we're looking at a nearby galaxy. That's that large galaxy in Virgo that we just looked at a slide ago. Some of these more distant galaxies. You know, we've got to start putting little arrows on here so you can see exactly which galaxy is being referred to. But as we look at those, they're getting further and farther away. If those are all similar types of galaxies, similar sizes, they're getting further away because they're getting smaller. We also see a relationship with the redshift. Here's a set of lines. And you see that pair of lines up there. It's only been shifted a tiny bit for the Virgo galaxy. If you go up here, a little bit further, here, 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 by the time you get to this one that is 870 million parsecs away, you're shifting, the, you're shifting those lines well across the spectrum. And again, we're looking at things that are billions of parsecs away. So this is 870 million parsecs. What, about two, two to three billion light years or so? So as you get further and further out, the disk shifts get even, get even larger. But the thing is that they, what was found by Hubble back in the 1920s is that there's a relationship. That the galaxies that are furthest away, that were distances measured by other means, actually had, were moving, were shifted further. We saw the shifts further. So the fast ones that are moving the fastest, we could use that to measure the distance. Now that's real convenient because that's a very easy measurement to make. Okay, it doesn't depend on anything else. We can make this measurement directly. We can measure, take as long as we have enough light from that galaxy to get a spectrum. So as long as we can see that galaxy at all, we can get the spectrum, find some spectral lines, and then determine how far shifted it is. That gives us the distance directly. So it's a very good way of getting the distance for these galaxies. So if we look at this, here's for some galaxies here. If we just make a graph, we take first the one on the left is just those five galaxies I was showing you. And you would say then, okay, we know, we know their distances from other means. So we know what their distances are. We, we can measure how fast they're receding from us. And we find out that there's a pretty good relationship for it. You don't have galaxies that are real far away moving very slowly. You don't have galaxies that are real close moving very quickly away from us. Is it perfect? Not really, even as you add more galaxies in, there's still some variation around it. But it gives you, like the main sequence in terms of a spectroscopic parallax, it gives you a very easy thing to measure, right? Very easily measure the recessional velocity from the Doppler shift. Boom, there it is. That tells me exactly how far away that galaxy is. I can do that out to the edge of the universe. As long as I can see the galaxy, as long as I can get a spectrum of that galaxy and measure how fast it's moving away. Doesn't involve looking at any individual stars or any individual parts of the galaxy, just the entire galaxy. As long as I can get enough light from that whole galaxy itself, I can then determine distances. 
Again, it still depends. There's still iffiness on exactly what's going on here. When we go out further, we have no way to confirm this as we go further out. Remember, type 1 supernovae worked out till maybe 3 billion light years. We're now using this well beyond that. So is there some difference? Did something different happen early on? Was the velocity always constant? Or had it changed? So it's iffy when you get much further, when you get way out there, but it's the only method we have. It's the only way we have to get distances out when you're that far away from us. There's no other way. None of the can't use type 1 supernovae aren't visible. Nothing else is visible indirectly except the overall galaxy itself. So what we get, if we put it together, the relationship, put it into equation, yay, we love those. That the recessional velocity is equal to some constant called Hubble's constant, signified with an h with a little subscript 0, times the distance. So very simple. Once you know what Hubble's constant is, then you measure the velocity, you get the distance. Measure the velocity, get the distance. You can determine the distance to all kinds of galaxies that way. Hubble's constant is the slope of that line and there's still some variation as to exactly what that value is. We've narrowed it down a little bit from what we knew 20, 25 years ago. 20 to 25 years ago actually estimates ranged from about 50 to maybe 150 kilometers per second for each megaparsec the galaxy is away. Now it's down maybe, now we've narrowed it down towards the lower end, maybe 50 to 80. You can imagine, 50 or 80 in there makes a big difference in your distance determination. So you'll have galaxies at one distance or another depending on exactly what that value, what that value is. The nice thing is with Hubble's law, Hubble's law works better as you get further out in the universe. The further away you get those galaxies, the better it is. And that's the opposite of all the other distance determinations we used. Everything else worked better when it was closer. When things were close, we could actually determine the distances much easier. Hubble's law is actually the opposite. When you're very close to something, and if you remember these clusters of galaxies, you had now if you look at this cluster of galaxies, and I'm just going to draw a bunch of elliptical galaxies here because they're easier, but you have this cluster of galaxies. Within that cluster, all those galaxies are moving a little bit. So this one might be moving this direction within the cluster. This one might be moving that way, that way, that way. They all have their own individual motions. And the overall expansion of the universe is perhaps moving that entire cluster away from us at some velocity. Now if you're very close to us, the expansion of the universe is small and it gets overwhelmed. You might have stars moving toward, galaxies moving towards us faster than the universe is expanding. That happens with the Andromeda galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is actually moving towards us. Its individual motion is much larger than the expansion of the universe at that close distance. When you get much further out, when you go way out into the universe and the, expansion, and the expansion of the universe is giving you that kind of velocity, really big velocity, and you have this cluster with little tiny velocities, it doesn't matter. Those little bits of a change don't make any difference to the overall velocity. Yes, they do, but not a significant one. You know, yes, they're going to either add to it or subtract to it, but overall they're not going to make a big change. Whereas here, if you're adding there's the expansion of the universe, but you have a, a galaxy that's moving 
in this direction, even bigger, it's still going to look like it's coming towards us. And in fact, it will be because it's moving in that direction. And our own Andromeda galaxy is probably on a collision course with the Milky Way and will you know, come back in several billions and billions of years. They will actually collide together and perhaps form a new, maybe may actually coalesce and form a new galaxy. So that's sort of what that last statement is doing, is just talking about these random motions. That each galaxy is moving within its cluster with some motion, and that becomes less and less important as you are further away from the further away from us. So that gives us our distance ladder, finishes up our distance ladder, and that works out to the edge of the universe. That works beyond about a hundred million parsecs. Good enough that it actually overlaps with a little bit of these that we can use it in some areas where we can see type 1 supernovae and compare to actually make sure the distances are working the same at least at that level. Works with the Tully-Fisher relationship for some of, the, some of the spiral galaxies that are the most distant here that we can see. Doesn't overlap with these, we've, we've used those to build up these other, these other ones. But that works out to get us distances out to the edge of the, edge of the universe. So the most distant galaxies, when you hear about the most distant galaxy, the newest most distant galaxy that's discovered, it's discovered, the distance is determined through Hubble's law. Which again, depends on that value of the constant. So if we don't know that constant very well, then that distance is uncertain. And you'll find that a lot of distances in astronomy are, you know, it might be there, it might be 50% more, might be 50% less. It's still a pretty good estimate when you're talking about those numbers. But if you're not used to that kind of errors because if we say, well, let's see, it's, you know, we're going to be traveling 200 miles plus or minus 100 miles. Well, that's a, big, that's a big difference, right? But when you're talking about when you're this far out and you're talking about how many billions of light years you're measuring, it's still, you know, is it a billion light years or is it 1.3 billion light years? Boy, if you're actually going to travel there, it makes a difference. But in terms of the accuracy of the measurements that we can get right now, that's about as good as we can get. There's just no way to go measure these distances exactly and tell you exactly how far away something is. I can tell you in the solar system, that works. I can measure, I can tell you exactly how far you know, Venus is away right now. We could go look it up. We could look at how far Mars is away or Jupiter. That's easy. We're real close. As you get further and further out, it gets harder and harder to get those distances. And you know, a 50% error estimate is not really that bad when we get that far out in the universe. All right. So that's basically a rough overview of general galaxies. Now we can look at what we call active galaxies. Now active galaxies aren't classified separately, so there's not a whole classification scheme to go through here for active galaxies. But they're not rare. They're not, you know, one in a million galaxies that is classified as an active galaxy. It's more like one in four or one in five. So if you look at some of those pictures I've shown you that had a number of galaxies in them, a good number of them were active, were what we classify as active galaxies. What an active galaxy means is that it's emitting more energy than it should. It's brighter than it should be based on you know, Hubble's classification. Based on this classification, it looks like an elliptical galaxy. But while all the elliptical galaxies are emitting about so much energy, this one's emitting a lot more. And it's not just the amount of energy. They're brighter. That's what the line is showing here. If we look at a normal galaxy here, it's mostly starlight, so it looks like the spectrum of a star. Right? The black body spectrum drops off very quickly over towards the ultraviolet and x-rays and slides down a lot slower out into the radio and the infrared. An active galaxy spectrum doesn't look anything like stars. It kind of levels off. It does drop down here towards the radio a little bit. 
But no matter where you look, it's emitting a lot more energy and a lot more high energy. A lot of x-rays. No x-rays from a normal galaxy. Hardly any. A lot of x-rays from an active galaxy. More visible light, more infrared light, more radio light that these galaxies are, are visible in. So they're emitting not only a different, a more energy, but they're emitting a different type of radiation. They don't look like stars. A normal galaxy, again, looks like a whole bunch of stars. If you took, took billions of stars and looked at their individual spectrum and added them all together, you'd get something that looked about like this. You, don't, you never get anything that looks like this. You never get anything with this intense x-ray emission. So something different is going on with these active galaxies. And it's primarily, not the whole galaxy, but it's primarily the nucleus of the galaxy that is what is giving you all the brightness. So, as I said, the regular ones are giving you what we call stellar radiation. It looks like the radiation from stars. Um, this is, these are giving what we call, we call a non-stellar radiation. So it's radiation from some other form. So it's not coming from stars. It's likely coming from this, perhaps the center, of the center of the galaxy. Remember our galaxy had a black hole at the center? Well, guess what? These ga- other galaxies are going to have that similar, a similar black hole, or maybe even a larger one. And that, will, that material spiraling into that black hole, if it's being fed enough, is going to emit enough radiation to overwhelm the light of the rest of the typical stars in the galaxy. Most of the radiation will be coming from that central portion. So some of the galaxies, and we are going to see some different types here, but there's not actually a formal classification scheme. You'll see a couple of different types that I'll put up. And the first one is what we call a starburst galaxy. And a starburst galaxy is nothing to do with the candy, but has only to do, although you think that, you know, with all the, with all the different things, or you think that M&M Mars, you know, owns the astronomer, they got starburst galaxy, you got the Mars bars, you got all those different, all of, all of their stuff. You know, Hershey never gets anything, right? There's no Hershey galaxy or something, so I don't know what, maybe they got paid off or something at some point in the past. But a starburst galaxy is really just a galaxy that's undergoing a burst of star formation. So it's having a burst of star formation. It's a lot more stars forming than you'd typically expect. So if you're looking at a spiral galaxy, yes, it's got blue stars in the spiral arms that have formed recently, but relative, but some. But these have a lot more going on. So that's one type of starburst galaxy, one type of active galaxy. That one is very easy to explain without even talking about a central black hole. That's just two galaxies probably collided together or interacted gravitationally and that caused star clouds to collide and went through that whole star formation process that we went through back in chapter, what was it, chapter 11 when we went through all the star formation, talked about all of that. That's all that's going on here is that gravitational interactions cause an excess of star formation. The first galaxies we really want to look at are those where the activity has nothing to do with necessarily with collisions. But it has to do with a lot more with things going down deep in the core of that galaxy. So it's what's going down in the center of that galaxy. What's happening deep down in that, near that central black hole. Material spiraling into that. That's where the activity is going on and that's where we're seeing a lot of the emission from these active galaxies. Now, instead of just barely starting on them with only a minute or so left, I'm going to go ahead and just stop there and leave that and then I'll pick up on those on Wednesday and we should be through this, we'll be through this by Friday. I've got, I'm more than halfway through. All right?
So don't forget, if you haven't taken quiz six, it's still up there and available through six o'clock tomorrow. So make sure you get make sure you get that taken. And otherwise, the other thing coming up is article review due on Friday. Otherwise, have a good afternoon, and I'll see everybody Wednesday.